On last week's Let's Get Real podcast, I gave you five theses on anti-intellectualism. Talking about anti-intellectualism as being more about aptitude than attitude. And that fact that it wasn't virtuous, and in some cases, many considered it to be a sin. On today's Let's Get Real podcast, I want to provide a few suggestions on how you and I can regain the Christian mind in the church. So join us. And let's get real about regaining the Christian mind into fellowship into the Christian church. And welcome to Let's Get Real Podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you for tuning in this week. And last week I mentioned to you that we were going to carry on this uh, series about uh, anti-intellectualism in the church. And I mentioned to you last week five theses about uh, how anti-intellectualism is uh, in the church. And also now what I want to do uh, today is just provide you with uh, some suggestions on how you and I can regain the Christian mind in the church. You know, if one person is thinking in the church and they do it with gentleness respect and respect with people who are struggling, and I'll share with you why I believe this in a little bit in our show today, because it seems that thinking is not a spiritual gift in our churches. You know, it's not listed in the spiritual gifts, but then, of course, you have things like discernment, which it brings in thinking and all of that, but you want to make sure it's just not all emotions and feeling. But, you know, over the last uh, few years, that I, you know, I have had the opportunity to uh, teach apologetics, to write apologetics courses, do apologetics workshops, and also do apologetics in the local church. Now, with that, I think it's very important to understand what apologetics is. Now, apologetics is the branch of Christian theology that offers reasons for the truthfulness of the Christian worldview. Now, most of the classes that I have taught have been anywhere from, say, like a few weeks to, you know, a moment uh, conversation to uh, a full semester course. But... N- Always in those scenarios, I have had the question come up or a comment made that anybody from a church that was where it wasn't in the churches that I was teaching, they have mentioned that their churches are not interested or there is no uh, interest in apologetics in their church. They are really concerned about this because I'll even get questions like, why isn't this taught in the church? And when we start up this to discuss the issue or the reasons for the problem, one of the things that always surfaces about the fact that there is little emphasis on the discipleship of the mind in the church today. It is apparent that many in the church have been taught that that is more spiritual to be simple-minded 
In other words, don't think so hard. God is only pleased with simple faith. And by the way, I I do understand that many of us don't have the time or the resources to learn all that we can about our faith, but let me move forward from here. Now, there's been a book that has been very, very influential in my Christian walk. I read it in the 90s. I read it recently on a second time around, and it is a brilliant book entitled Love the Lord Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul by Dr. J.P. Morland, who teaches at Talbot Theological Seminary. Now, in his brilliant book, Dr. Morland traces the history of what happened to the Christian mind. And I shared on a, on a past episode of, of the Let's Get Real how the church, how the evangelical church has lost its mind. A lot of what I shared in that whole show actually was what I'm going to summarize here uh, in this, because it's very, very important. Now, you can go back to the 19th century, but Moreland takes it all the way back to the pilgrims. And the pilgrims, along with other American believers, placed a very high value on the intellectual life in relationship to Christian spirituality, and the Puritans were highly educated people. The literacy rate for men, Massachusetts and Connecticut, was around 85 to 95%. And these folks founded colleges. They taught their children to read and write before the age of six. They studied art, philosophy, and other fields as well. And evangelical scholars such as Jonathan Edwards were scholarly and well-informed about other fields other than just theology. Christians originally founded several universities. The minister at that time was regarded as proficient in both spiritual and intellectual matters. And then also, when we get to the first awakening, the first great awakening that happened in the United States somewhere around the 1730s to the 1750s, Christianity was not prepared for the philosophical onslaught that began to undermine biblical authority in the late 1800s. In other words, Christianity was not prepared for the philosophies of the folks like David Hume, who lived 1711 to 1776, and Immanuel Kant, 1724 and 1804, and German higher criticism and Darwinian evolution in the mid-1800s. During the middle 1800s, Christianity was continued, uh, Christianity continued to see an, anti, an anti-intellectual approach to sermons. Ministers such as Charles Finney, who preached during the Layman's Revival, uh, prayer revival in 1856-1858, Finney delivered simple sermons that were more tailored around emotions in contrast to sermons that were reflective and doctrinally informed. Now, Dr. Moreland also noted that many positive things did come up come out over this period. However, the downside was that since thousands of people were converted on the basis of emotion and warm, fuzzy feelings, these new converts were not trained to think theologically, nor were they trained to think doctrinally. Moreland also commented on the impact of Christians refusing to be informed about the language of ideas in the marketplace. He says, instead of standing up and doing the hard work for responding to the critics. Christians opted out and said, it doesn't matter what the facts say. I feel Jesus in my heart, and that's all that really matters to me. So we opted for the subjective pietism instead of hard thinking on the issues, and therefore we lost our place in the public square. 
and the way to deal with the vain philosophies, whether may be found, whether they may be found, wherever they may be found, is to have good philosophy, not to abandon the art of critical thinking altogether. Another book that traced the history of anti-intellectualism in the church was Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think, and What Do uh, What to Do About It by Oz Guinness. Now, Dr. Guinness put it this way. He said, loving God with our minds is not finally a question of orthodoxy, but love. Offering up our minds to God and all our thinking is a part of our praise. Anti-intellectualism is quite simply a sin. We mentioned that last week. Evangelicals must address it as such beyond all excuses, evasions, or rationalizations of false piety. We need to affirm certain truths. Intellectualism is not an answer to anti-intellectualism, for the perils of intellectualism supremely in Gnosticism are deadly and ever-recurring. Our passion is not for the academic respectability, but for the faithfulness to the commands of Jesus. Our lament is not for the destruction of the elite culture of Western civilization, but for the deficiencies in our everyday discipleship as Christians. For anti-intellectualism is truly the refusal to love the Lord our God with all our minds as required in the first first of Jesus' commandments. Thus, if we take the commands of Jesus seriously, we cannot dismiss the charge of anti-intellectualism as elitism and intellectual snob or intellectual snobbery as god has given us minds we can measure our obedience by whether we are loving him with those minds and disobedience whether we are not in his book the closing of the american mind taking every thought captive david gill makes a significant contribution about the relationship between intellectualism and discipleship he says this Mindless emotionalism or traditionalism, segmented, fragmented lives and ignorance disguised as simple faith are all terrible deformations of Christian discipleship. But so is arid, dry intellectualism. Developing a Christian mind is but one crucial aspect of Christian discipleship. It could not be more evident to me then that one of the reasons that Christians are discipled into anti-intellectualism is because of poor exegesis. Now let's take a look at some scriptures that can be misunderstood as speaking against anti-intellectualism. Number one, Acts 4.13, the Jewish elders and rulers observed Peter and John were uneducated and unlearned. Now, many have concluded that intellectual emphasis has no place for the life of the believer. But the question, but the statement is, is, is dead wrong. It is important to understand that Jewish leaders did not mean that Peter and John were irrational or intellectually unskilled. They meant that they had not undergone the proper rabbinical training. Number two, Colossians 2.8 is where this word philosophy comes up, where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Some have concluded from this passage that Paul is commanding people to avoid secular studies 
or philosophy. Now, if we look at this passage in its context, which is something that's very, very important, Paul was actually dealing with a proto-Gnostic philosophy that was threatening the Colossian church. If Paul had not had a vast understanding of philosophy, he could not have even addressed the problem in the Colossian church. And it is important to note that Paul even quoted pagan philosophers in his sermon in Acts 17, particularly in verse 28. Number three, 1 Corinthians 1, 19 to 21. Paul writes, For it is written that I will destroy in the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And then he goes on, he asks some rhetorical questions. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, with regards to this passage, does this passage say that God is against reason? Well, no, it doesn't. It is important to note that Greek orators prided themselves with possessing persuasive words of wisdom, and it was their practice to persuade a crowd of any side, to any side of an issue for the right price. So since Paul is most likely condemning hubris or pride, he is against false pride and prideful or prideful use of reason, but he is not against reason itself. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you, cha unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. Now, in interpreting this passage, it is important to note that Jesus challenged his philosophers to be like children morally, not intellectually. Christians are called to exhibit childlikeness and being sensitive to evil and sin and being humble and, and, contrite, and contrite in spirit. But Jesus also contrasts the need for humility with tough-mindedness in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep, in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, what I want to do here is I want to provide you with some suggestions with how you and I can regain a Christian mind. Now, or restore the Christian mind for that matter. Now, number one is a call to Christian leaders. Since Christian leaders are, are the ones who are to equip the body for the works of ministry based on Ephesians 4.12, we read Dr. Groteis, Dr. Doug Groteis from Denver Seminary again, where he says, Since we as Christians are called and commanded to have a reason for the hope within them, according to 1 Peter chapter 3.15, it is the responsibility of Christian teachers, pastors, mentors, and educators of all kinds are remiss if they avoid, denigrate, or minimize the importance of apologetics to biblical living and Christian witness. Now, as a leader, you might object, but you might say that, ah, my people aren't that deep. 
or they just want the simple stuff. Well, my response to this objection is that it is your responsibility to show them the need for discipleship of the mind. If you don't do anything about it, the church will be in the same condition it was 50 years ago to where it is today, and when everything all comes down to uh, the the you-know-what hitting the fan, where's the faith of your parishioners going to be? Why do we keep dumbing down uh, the message for the people of God? Is it that is that what really God wants? I don't think it is. So, what, Pastor, you need to be proactive. Number two is the fact that we need to understand that people that we talk to today are created in the image and likeness of God. As Dr. Norman Geisler has said, God is a rational being and man is made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1.27. And since God thinks rationally, man was given the same capacity. Brute beasts are, by contrast, are called irrational, and that's in Jude verse 10. The basis laws of human reason are common to believer and unbeliever alike, and without them, there would be no writing, no thinking, or rational inference. inference. Nowhere are these laws spelled out in the Bible. Rather, they are part of God's general revelation and special object of philosophical thought. End of quote. Now, can you and I agree that we see in Scripture that God, the God of Israel, is a rational being? The principles of good reason do flow from his very nature, and it is evident that God calls you and I to use our reason. He says it in Isaiah 118, 1 Peter 3.15, Matthew 22, verses 36 and 37. God is a rational being, and he created us as rational beings. So I think you and I can agree that since human beings are created in the image of God, reason is not opposed to revelation. It is a part of it. And learning the rules of clear and correct reasoning do play an integral part in our service to the Lord. Number three, we need to talk about establishing a worldview. Now, the term worldview has been around for about 30 plus years or so, but the term worldview is used in the sense to describe, um, and it was actually started by a guy, uh, a philosopher by the name of Wilhelm Dilthe, and he lived 1833 to 1911, and Dilthe affirmed that philosophy must be defined as a comprehensive vision of reality that involves the social and historical reality of mankind, not excluding religion. A worldview is thus the nature and structure of the body of convictions of a group or individual. Worldview includes a sense of meaning and value and principles of action, and it is much more than merely an outlook or an attitude. Each person's worldview is based on on a key category, an organizing principle, a guiding image, a clue, or an insight selected from the complexity of his or her multidimensional experience. Now, believe it or not, a worldview will impact how you and I view our vocation, our family, our government, 
education, and environment. The, a worldview also impacts ethical issues in our culture, such as, say, like uh, the gay agenda and homosexuality. Uh, the life in the womb, like abortion and terminations of pregnancy, of, say, uh, genetic engineering and things like stem cell research, things like that. Now, remember also the competing issues and the competing worldviews in our culture today that have been shaped by the past, that impact the present, and will affect our future if we do not, as a church, regain the Christian mind. Folks, we need to engage the Christian mind. Number four, we need to understand that Christians need an integrated faith. An integrated faith. Now, as I mentioned in, in part two and number two with the image of God, this also follows along that line. You know, that we can all agree that God is a, the God of the Bible is certainly a God of revelation. However, the Bible does command us to love God with our hearts and our souls and our minds as well as the rest of our being. Let's not forget the commandment that's found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 30, where uh, Mark wrote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Biblical faith involves a commitment of the whole person. Let me say that again. Biblical faith involves a commitment of the whole person, not excluding the mind. The Hebrew word for heart is leb or labad. While the word heart is used as a metaphor to describe the physical organ, the organ beating in our chest, from a biblical standpoint, it is also the center or defining element of the entire person, and it can be seen as the seat of the person's intellectual, emotional, affective, and volitional life. And now, in the New Testament, very much like, the word there is cardia, or cardia, is where we get our word cardiac. And that came to stand for man's entire mental and moral activity. Both rational and emotional elements in the in a person's minds. In other words, the the word the disciple of Jesus is called to use good reason, which the Bible commends us to discover truth. Again, we have um, Isaiah 118 and Matthew 22 27 and first Peter chapter you know chapter 3 verse 15 see those verses come out back and forth and all all the way they come full circle because God is a God of reason come let us reason together says the Lord you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul all your mind and be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect or meekness and fear or gentleness and reverence but you see where this is going and folks number five is talking about engaging the culture we need to be about engaging the culture this is what our our ministry is all about it's it's not just going and helping you engage you and 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 help disciple you folks we need to take what we learn and go out and engage the culture 
We need to do that. And according to a Barna survey back uh, a while back, 95% of all Christians prof- that were professing Christians anyways have never attempted to share their faith. And out of that 5% remaining, only 2% actually did that. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And since and since Jesus commands his people to make disciples of the nations in Matthew 28, verse 19, the Christian who is not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16, will desire to share the good news of Jesus with his neighbor. Now, it is my conviction, the reason that there are many people who are lacking interest in apologetics and critical thinking is because evangelism and outreach is neglected. Christians also have a responsibility to be aware of the issues that are in our culture and speak into those issues intelligently. Now, my suggestion to change this problem is to challenge people in the church to take a survey with five spiritual questions and engage people with that survey on a regular basis. And once they see how people respond to the questions, they will begin to see how inept they are to handle the objections to the faith of the happy pagan, or coming from the happy pagan. By doing a survey, this allows the people to witness firsthand the tremendous amounts of diversity that are in our culture. And one of the reasons the Holy Spirit was able to use Paul with a variety of audiences was because Paul did have a vast knowledge of the Hebrew Bible as well as Jewish and Greek culture. Now, if someone asks a question that cannot be answered, it allows the believer the privilege of doing the research about the particular issue that they have they've been challenged with. And then it, it's not a problem. It's not a badge of dishonor to go and say, you know, well, I don't know. I can get back to you. That's the thing that you want to do so that you can set up a time to go back to them and come up with an come to them with an answer because you didn't know it and that you can go and you can share what you learned and, and still enjoy the friendship and maybe hopefully bring them into fellowship. You know, William Lane Craig put it this way. He says, it is not just scholars and pastors who need to be intellectually engaged with issues. Laymen need to become intellectually engaged. Our congregations are filled with people who are idling and intellectual neutral. As believers, their minds are going to waste. One result is an immature, superficial faith. People who simply ride the roller coaster of emotional experience are cheating themselves out of a deeper and richer faith by neglecting the intellectual side of the faith. Think about that. Let's move to number six. Number six, realize is, think there's something that we need to realize. Number six is realize that the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with hard work and study. Sadly, I think many Christians think that the Holy Spirit is some sort of mystical force that does it all for the believer. He doesn't care that he doesn't care about serious study and would rather have us be lazy-minded. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Holy Spirit works with our disciplined study. He is not against it. Let's move to number seven. And this one here is where the battle of ideas really goes. 
because the professor in the university impacts each student 30 years. For the impact that a professor has in the university impacts the culture for the next 30 years. I hope that made sense. Nevertheless, from the university perspective, it is imperative that students be trained to think critically as well as apologetically. By the time Christian students leave to go to college, they should have a grasp of a biblical worldview as well as the ability to understand the importance of, an, of integrating the mind into all areas of the spiritual life. If young college students compartmentalize their spiritual life, they will end up viewing spirituality as simply going to Bible studies, having a private prayer time, and congregational church membership. Classes and study time will be, will be viewed as secular and something they need to get through in order to graduate. This mentality needs to be corrected because too many students are walking away from their faith because they're being challenged. They're not prepared going into the university setting. This whole thing must be corrected. How can students impact the university if they do not understand the way the culture thinks? You need to know how the culture thinks before you go into the university. Before you go on to the battlefield, you have to be armed. You have to be well prepared. But this is why we don't have this because of anti-intellectualism in the church. And we have a, we have a fallout of 75 to 88% of the kids walking away. I'm running out on time, but let me just wrap this up by going back to Doug Groteis, who said this. What about Christians who want to study philosophy in college? Should they avoid it? Groteis, I think, has a pretty good answer. Young Christians with an aptitude in philosophy and academic pursuits in general should be encouraged that these disciplines are just as spiritual as anything directly church-related. For example, being a Christian philosopher at a secular college or university is just as godly and spiritual than being a pastor, a missionary, or professor at a Christian institution. And he gives 1 Corinthians 10.31 and Colossians 3.17. One may prudently apply one's apologetic skills in these settings and extend the Christian witness. You know, this has been part two of dealing with anti-intellectualism in the church. And what I've done today is basically give you seven suggestions uh, on how to regain and restore the Christian mind. Next week, I'm going to talk about the problem that anti-intellectualism presents to the church from a pastor's perspective. And with that, I want you to know that uh, this subject is not going away until churches start bringing in the discipline of recultivating and restoring and, 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 and discipling the mind in the church. You know, as I wrap this show up, we lost a, a friend of ours. Uh, she went home to be with the Lord. And you know how I always close my show. I want to basically say this, that uh, Linda Bond was a, was a teacher, Spanish teacher, at the local Christian high school here before she moved down to uh, Florida. Uh, she went home to be with the Lord this week. And uh, I was reminded in her 
in her eulogy this week that how she touched people in presenting Jesus to people, living out the life that Jesus was living through her, was like putting a fingerprint of herself on them to impact them. And as I close my podcast every week, going out and encouraging you to go out and give them heaven, that's what exactly what Linda did every day. And I didn't realize that until I, I was attending her online service yesterday. So I do thank God for that, and I want to dedicate that, go out and give them heaven, not just because I got it from a mentor in apologetics, but because it was, that's exactly what we do. When we go out and we share with people, when we live out what Bobby Conway calls the fifth gospel, I know I'm going a little over today, but what Bobby calls the, the fifth gospel, people will not read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And anti-intellectualism in the church is causing the witness in the church to wane. I can tell you story after story with where I am now and how I can share with you a story about one who has come to faith and one who I know that are the kind of, if, if things keep going, they may consider the Christian faith. Because, folks, today we live in a culture where people have to consider the Christian claim. They have to see Christians living out their life, uh, living the life of Jesus, and not living like an, a judgmental jerk in life, or living like Westboro Baptist Church, going and putting uh, banners up saying, God hates you. You know, That isn't how it works. How it works is us going out and impacting heart after heart, after heart, but not just the heart, mind to mind to mind. And it doesn't matter what worldview or religion somebody has. You have the Christian mind. You have, you have the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He's resurrected from the dead. We walk in resurrection power. So folks, as you go out this week, Go out and put the fingerprint of Jesus, the Jesus who you live, who lived the, the Jesus who lives in you. And as you do, go out and give them heaven. And we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless you.